0: This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 10, given in Berlin on the 8th of December, 1908. Adhering to our envisaged program, this winter we will gather a series of apparently widely divergent details relating to human health and sickness and present them in these branch meetings, and at a later stage these details will come together to form a whole, culminating in a specific insight toward which we are gradually working our way. In the first of the relevant lectures in this series we offered a kind of classification of diseases, and last time we tried to find our way into what we can really only call the wording of the Ten Commandments. Everything else over and above the actual words will emerge during the next few meetings. Last time we were chiefly concerned to acquaint ourselves with the content and inner orientation of the commandments. Today let us speak about other things which have scarcely any direct connection with preceding and subsequent matters, since they are a collation of details whose overarching intent will only later become clear. Initially today we will examine a significant moment in human evolution on Earth. Those who have worked for a longer time within the anthroposophical movement have long been familiar with this, while the others will only gradually find their way into these trains of thought. The moment in human evolution we wish to recall lies a long way back. If we go back through the post-Atlantean period and then through Atlantean times, to ancient Lemuria, we encounter the moment when the division into sexes occurs for earthly humanity. As you know, we cannot speak of a division into sexes in the human realm prior to this. I would like to make it quite clear that we are not now speaking of the very first emergence of two sexes in general in earth evolution, or in our whole process of evolution, as it extends to the kingdoms surrounding us. Phenomena that must be assigned to a division into two sexes do emerge earlier. But as far as the human realm is concerned, the division into two sexes only occurs during the Lemurian epoch. Prior to this we find a human form that is very differently configured, and in a sense contains both sexes, in an undifferentiated form. We can imagine the outward transition from hermaphrodite existence to a division into two sexes by picturing how the earlier hermaphrodite human form gradually developed into a group of individuals who developed the characteristics of one gender, the female, in a more pronounced way, while the other group accentuated male characteristics. However, this is still a long way from a division into two genders. It is just an increasing accentuation of one set of characteristics, at a time also when humanity still inhabited a very tenuous substantiality. We have initially brought this period to mind here because our question today focuses on the purpose and meaning of the origin of the two sexes. We can only ask about such a meaning if we stand on a spiritual scientific foundation, since physical evolution acquires its purpose and significance from higher worlds. As long as we stand in the physical world, and also study the physical world with, if you like, a philosophic eye, E-Y-E, it is somewhat childlike to speak of, in quotes, purpose, Goethe and others rightly poked fun at those who speak of nature's purposes in a way that suggests, say, that nature in its wisdom produced cork so that man could make stoppers with it. This is a childlike view of things, and can only lead to illusion about aspects of key importance. Such an observation would be like looking at a clock and imagining that clever little devils are at work inside it to move the hands forward. If we wish to perceive the real nature of a clock, we have to find our way into the mind that made it, that of the clockmaker. And likewise, if we wish to gain insight into the purposeful nature of the world, we have to pass beyond its physical properties and enter into the realm of spirit. Thus, purpose, meaning, and aim are words we can only apply to evolution if we study it from a spiritual-scientific perspective. It is in this sense that we ask now, what purpose lay in the gradual elaboration of the two genders and their reciprocal interplay? The purpose will become clear to you if you consider how fertilization, as we know it, which we can also call the mutual influence of the two sexes, previously occurred in a different way. We should not think that the time when the division into two genders occurred was the first instance of what we can call fertilization. That is not so. In the periods preceding a two-gender humanity, though, fertilization occurred quite differently. Looking back with clairvoyant consciousness, we find that there was a time in human evolution on earth when fertilization already occurred in connection with nutrition, so that the hermaphrodite entities of earlier times absorbed fertilizing powers along with food. In this period, therefore, when nutrition was of course also a much subtler business, the nutritional juices human beings imbibed at the same time contained something that endowed them with the capacity to bring forth their own kind. Here you have to remember one thing, though, that the nutritional juices drawn from surrounding materiality did not always contain these fertilization fluids, but did so only at quite specific times. This depended on the cyclical alternations that occurred, which we could compare with our own seasonal changes, through the course of a year, with climatic changes and so forth. At very specific times, the nutritional juices these hermaphrodite beings drew from the environment also contained fertilizing power. If we look back still further with clairvoyant perception, we find another peculiarity of ancient reproduction. The multiplicity of individual people as we know it today Resulting in different people's individual characteristics, on which is based the diversity of life in our current cycle of humanity, did not exist prior to the emergence of two genders. There was instead a great uniformity. These beings closely resembled each other, and also their ancestors. Not yet divided into two genders, they were outwardly similar in appearance, and inwardly too they were all fairly alike in character. The fact that people resembled each other so closely did not have the same disadvantage in those times as it would have for our own. Imagine how boring human life would be if people today were born with the same appearance and character, too. How little could really happen in human life since each person would want the same as every other. This was not so in ancient times. When human beings were more etheric, more spiritual, not so deeply immersed in materiality, people were really very similar at birth and even for a certain period during childhood. And teachers in those days would not have needed to worry about one being a wild tearaway while the other was quiet and retiring. In different eras... People were different in character, but basically they were, in a certain sense, very similar to one another. During the course of an individual's life, however, this did not remain so. Through inhabiting a softer, more spiritual corporeality, a person was far more open to prevailing influences arising in his environment, and under these influences he would change enormously during this ancient epoch of the earth. In a sense, he became more individualized through having what one might call a soft, malleable nature. Thus, he became more or less an imprint of his surroundings. In particular, at a quite specific period of life, which would coincide with puberty today, it became possible for everything in his surroundings to affect him. The difference between changing periods of time, which we could compare with our alternating seasons today, was very great in those days, and a person's location in a particular place in the world had a major effect on him. In those times, a short journey from one place to another would affect him profoundly. When people go on long journeys today, however, today, However much they see and experience, they basically return as the same people, unless someone is really extremely susceptible to impressions. In ancient times this was not so. Everything exerted the greatest influence on people, and as long as they inhabited this soft materiality I spoke of, they could only very gradually become individualized in the course of life. At a certain point, this capacity ceased. A further aspect is that the earth itself became increasingly dense, and as the substance of the earth, its, in quotes, earthiness, if you like, became more pronounced, this uniformity came to be harmful. For then people increasingly lost the capacity to change during their lives. Instead, they were endowed with a great innate density. And this is also why people today change so little during their lives. This led Schopenhauer to state that basically people cannot change their character at all. This is because they inhabit such dense materiality and are unable easily to work on it and change it. If we were able to change our limbs, as was still the case in those ancient times, For instance, extending or shortening a limb at will, according to need, we would be far more open to impressions. Basically, we would then incorporate into our own individuality something that allowed us to make changes within ourselves. A person is always in intimate contact with his surroundings, especially with his social milieu. To ensure we understand each other very precisely, I would like to tell you something you may not have considered, but which is certainly true. Assume that you are sitting opposite someone and talking to him. I am not speaking of someone with profound esoteric schooling, but of normal, ordinary life and ordinary interpersonal dialogue. So, imagine that two people face each other, one of whom speaks while the other listens. Usually we think that the person listening is not doing anything. That's not the case. In such phenomena we can still see the influence of our surroundings. Although outwardly imperceptible, inwardly it is very clear and even striking that the person listening reproduces everything the other does. Even movements of the physical vocal cords are imitated so that the listener speaks along with what the other says. Whenever you listen, you are speaking along with what you hear, with a slight resonance of your vocal cords and the rest of the speech apparatus. And it makes a great difference whether the person speaking has a grating or a pleasant voice, which you then reproduce with corresponding movements. In this respect, we copy everything, and since this basically occurs continuously, it exerts a great influence on all education albeit only within these narrow parameters. If you take this vestige we have retained of openness to our surroundings and expand it to the greatest conceivable scope, you will have an idea of how in ancient times people were immersed in and experienced their environment. In those times, for instance, the human imitative capacity was developed to a magnificent degree. If one person performed a movement, everyone else did it too. Only in very specific domains do tiny vestiges of this remain nowadays. If one person yawns, for instance, others may yawn too. But remember that in those ancient times a dull, twilight form of consciousness existed. Such an imitative capacity, is intrinsically connected with this. As the earth, with everything upon it, grew ever denser, human beings grew increasingly unable to reshape themselves under the influence of their environment. For instance, in the Atlantean era, which relatively speaking is not so ancient, a sunrise was something that had a hugely formative effect on human beings since they were so inwardly open to its influence, and this resulted in magnificent inner experiences. When these repeatedly occurred, they altered a person greatly during his lifetime. All this diminished and gradually faded the more humanity advanced. In Lemurian times, before the moon departed from the earth, a great danger threatened human beings that of rigidifying entirely or becoming mummified. The gradual withdrawal of the moon from our earth evolution kept this danger at bay. At the same time, as the moon departed, the division into sexes occurred, and this gave a renewed impulse for human individualization. If it had been possible for humanity to reproduce without the two genders, it would not have embarked on this individualization. Today's diversity of humankind is due to the interplay of the sexes. If a solely feminine aspect were at work, human individuality would be extinguished and all people would become the same. Through the additional influence of a masculine aspect, people are endowed with individual characters from birth. The significance of the interplay of the sexes is that emergence and separation of the masculine element enabled individualization from birth onward to replace the old form of individualization. What the whole environment brought about in former times was concentrated into the reciprocal action of the sexes, thus pushing individualization back to the emergence of the physical human being at birth. This is the purpose of the collaborative interplay between the two genders. Individualization occurs through the effect of the male sex on the female. But in consequence, something else also came into play for human beings. If I describe this now, I beg you to consider it as something absolutely characteristic of humanity. If we stand on the foundations of spiritual science, we should not regard such a thing as applying in the same way to animals as to human beings. The subtler forces at work in health and disease are subject to very different causes in animals than in humans. What I am going to say, therefore, relates exclusively to humankind, and we will first need to become aware of the subtler aspects at work here. Place yourself back in those ancient times when human beings were entirely given up to their surroundings which pervaded them. On the one hand the nutritional fluids drawn from the environment also facilitated fertilization while on the other human beings were individualized by environmental influences. Standing on the foundation of spiritual science, we know, of course, that everything surrounding us and affecting us, whether as light, sound, heat, cold, hardness, softness, this color or that, is the outward expression of something spiritual. And in those ancient times, people perceived what was spiritual rather than external sensory impressions. When someone looked up to the sun, he did not see the physical globe of the sun, but instead what was preserved in the Persian religion as Ahura Mazda, as the great aura. The spiritual aspect, the totality of spiritual sun beings, appeared to him, and the same was true of air, water and everything in the surrounding environment. Today, if you drink in the beauty of a painting, you can have a sort of distillation of this experience, except that at that time it was richer and more vivid. If we wished to express the ancient outlook, instead of saying, This or that tastes like this to me, we would have to say, This or that spirit does me good. It was like this, when people engaged with their surroundings through eating, which was an entirely different kind of activity from nowadays. And the time when fertilization powers were imbibed was likewise quite different, a phenomenon of the spiritual environment. Spirits overshadowed the human being and stimulated him to bring forth his own kind, and this was also experienced and observed as a spiritual process. Now it became ever more impossible for the human being to see the spiritual aspect of his surroundings. This was increasingly veiled by his day consciousness. Gradually he ceased to perceive the underlying spirit of things, seeing instead only external objects that are the outward expression of the spirit, and forgetting the spirit that stands behind them. And as his form grew ever more dense, the spiritual influences upon him diminished. The process of densification and consolidation rendered human beings increasingly autonomous, separating them off from their spiritual environment. The further back we delve into ancient times, the more divine and spiritual does environmental influence become. The human organism was really such that people were a reflection and likeness of their environment, of the spiritual entities hovering around them. They were images of the gods who were present in the ancient eras of the earth. This faded increasingly, especially through the interplay of the two sexes, which caused the spiritual world to recede from human gaze. Human beings increasingly perceived the sensory world, We must picture this very vividly. Just picture how in those ancient times humans were fertilized from the divine spiritual world. The gods themselves bestowed their powers to make human beings resemble them. This meant that what we call illness did not exist in those ancient times. There was no inner disposition or susceptibility to illness. There could not be since everything in the human being and everything working upon him came from the sound and healthy divine spiritual cosmos. Divine spiritual entities are healthy, and at that time they formed the human being in their image. And so the human being was healthy too. But as he approached the time when the interplay of the sexes began, Along with the withdrawal of spiritual worlds, and became individualized, the health of divine spiritual entities increasingly receded from him to be replaced by something else. This reciprocal action of the sexes was, as you see, embedded in and accompanied by passions and instincts engendered in the physical world. We must specifically look for this stimulus originating in the physical world after humankind had reached the point where the two sexes came to please one another in a physical, sensory way. By no means did this immediately occur the moment the two sexes existed. The effect of the two sexes upon each other, in Atlantean times too, occurred when physical consciousness slumbered, really, as it were when everything slept. Only in the middle era of Atlantean times did the pleasure of the two sexes in each other arise, what we can call passionate love, and thus a sensual love that was blended with pure supersensible love, what we might call platonic love, an expression scarcely given credence today, but it does really have its place. Platonic love would exist to a much greater extent if sensual love were not mixed up with it. And whereas in the past everything that helped shape humankind was a consequence of the divine spiritual environment, this was now increasingly replaced by the reciprocal influence of the passions and drives of the two sexes. Sensual desire, stimulated by the outward eye, EYE, by external sight of the other gender, became connected with the reciprocal effect of the two sexes. At birth, therefore, something connected with the distinctive nature of passions and feelings in humans, embedded in physical life, was incorporated into them. Previously, human beings received what existed in them from the divine spiritual beings of their surroundings. But now, through the act of fertilization... They were endowed with something they absorbed from the sensory world and internalized as autonomous, self-contained beings. After human beings had entered into a two-gender condition, they endowed their offspring with what they themselves had experienced in the world of the senses. So picture two human beings. These two humans live in the physical world, perceiving it. Through their senses, thereby developing various drives and desires stimulated by external things. Notably, they develop drives and passions through their own outwardly stimulated sensual attraction to each other. What approaches people from without is drawn down into the sphere of autonomous humankind, is no longer in full accord with the divine spiritual cosmos. This is acquired by human beings through the physical act of fertilization. It is instilled into them. And this mundane life of their own, which they do not derive from divine worlds, but from the outward aspect of the divine spiritual world, is passed on to their offspring through fertilization. If someone is worse in this respect, he passes on worse qualities to his descendants than another who has pure good qualities. And thus we have what we must conceive as the authentic meaning of original sin. Original sin arises when human beings acquire the capacity to implant in their descendants their individual experiences in the physical world. Each time the sexes are fired by passion, the constituents of the two sexes are blended into the human souls descending from the astral world. Whenever someone incarnates, he descends from the world of Devakan, and forms his astral sphere in accordance with the distinctive nature of his individuality. This astral sphere merges with something intrinsic to the parents' astral bodies, their drives, passions and desires and thus a person acquires what his ancestors have experienced. What passes through the generations and is acquired and transmitted as intrinsically human characteristics in the course of generations is what we must understand by the term original sin. And now we come to something different again, something entirely new entered humanity through human individualization. In earlier times, divine spiritual beings, who were entirely sound and whole, formed the human being in their image, but now as autonomous being, the human being sundered himself from the universal harmony of divine spiritual health. His singularity was, in a certain sense, in opposition to this whole divine spiritual environment. Imagine that you have a creature that only develops in obedience to environmental influences. It will embody the nature of this environment. But now imagine that it encloses itself in a skin, so that it develops its own qualities in addition to those of its environment. When humans became individualized through the division of the sexes, they also developed their own inner characteristics— causing opposition between the great intrinsically healthy divine spiritual harmony and individualized human nature. As these individual characteristics continued to take effect, becoming a real factor, human evolution for the first time incorporated a capacity for illness. So here we meet the moment in human evolution where disease first becomes a possibility, connected, as it is, with human individualization. Prior to this, while humankind was still connected with the divine spiritual world, disease could not arise. It first arose alongside individualization, at the same time as the division of the sexes. This holds true only of human evolution, and cannot be applied in the same way to the animal world. Disease is indeed a result of the processes I have just described, and in particular the astral body, basically, was the aspect originally affected in this way. The effect of the two sexes flows into the astral body, first incorporated by the human soul as it descends from the world of Devakan. The astral body is, therefore, the part of us that most clearly expresses non-divine nature. The etheric body is already more divine, since we do not exert such a strong influence on it, and most divine of all is the physical body, this temple of God, for it has been thoroughly removed from human influence. In our astral body we seek all kinds of pleasure and can entertain all possible desires, that are harmful for the physical body, but our physical body, by contrast, has been preserved as such a wondrous instrument that it is capable of resisting substances toxic to the heart for decades, as well as other disruptive influences from the astral body. All these processes, we have to say, have rendered the human astral body the worst aspect of our nature. If you study human nature more carefully, you will find that the causes of illness are most deeply rooted in the astral body and in its harmful effect on the etheric body and then transmitted via the latter to the physical body. So now we can understand certain things that cannot otherwise be understood. I would now like to speak of ordinary mineral-based medicines. A medicine derived from the mineral kingdom acts first on the human physical body. What purpose does it have, therefore, for us to treat our physical body with a mineral medicine? Please note that I am not speaking at present of any kind of herbal medicine, but of purely mineral constituents, metals, salts, and so forth. Let us assume that someone takes a certain mineral medicine. As the clairvoyant gaze observes this, it discovers something very remarkable. Clairvoyant consciousness can accomplish the following feat it always has the ability to divert attention away from something. You can divert attention away from the whole physical human body, perceiving only the ether body, astral body, and capital I aura. Using strongly negative attention, you can suggest away the physical body. Now, if someone takes a mineral medicine of some kind, you can withdraw your whole clairvoyant attention from everything else and direct it solely toward the metal or mineral that is now within him. By suggestion, you make the bones, muscles, blood and so forth disappear and direct your attention solely to the particular mineral substance that has permeated the person. Clairvoyant consciousness then discovers something very remarkable. This mineral substance has been finely distributed throughout so that it assumes the human form. Before you stands a human form, a human phantom, consisting of the substance that the person has ingested. Let us assume that he took antimony, Then you see before you a human form consisting of finely distributed antimony, and the same would be true of every ingested mineral medicine. You make a new human within yourself, consisting of this mineral substance. You incorporate it into you. So now let us ask what purpose this might have and what point. The point is as follows. If you left as he is someone who needs something like this, and did not give him the medicine despite his real need of it, certain negative forces in his astral body would work upon his ether body, and the ether body in turn on the physical body, gradually destroying it. Now, though, you have imbued the physical body with a double whose effect is to prevent the physical body from hearkening to the astral body's influence. Imagine a bean plant. If you give it a supporting cane, it winds around it and now no longer follows the movements of the wind. This double acts as a kind of cane for a person, formed from the incorporated substance. It keeps the physical body intact and withdraws it from the influences of the astral body and ether body. By this means, you render a person's physical body independent, in a sense, from his astral and ether body. That is the effect of a mineral medicine. But you will also immediately see the negative aspect of this, for it does indeed have a very deleterious side to it. Since you have artificially removed the physical body from its connection with the other bodies, weakening the influence of astral and ether body on the physical body, you have made the physical body independent. And the more you administer such medicines to your body, the less the astral and ether bodies will engage with it. Thus the physical body will grow to be inwardly hardened, an autonomous entity subject to its own laws. Imagine what people are doing, what the effect on their body is when they take various mineral medicines throughout their life. Someone who has gradually absorbed a great many mineral medicines bears the phantom of these minerals within him, a dozen such mineral medicines perhaps. These enclose the physical body within four walls, as it were. How then can the astral body and ether body engage with it? Such a person actually drags his physical body around with him and is fairly powerless in relation to it. Someone who has medicated himself in this way for a long time will find, if he seeks a more psychological form of treatment that acts particularly on the subtler bodies, that he has become more or less unreceptive to soul influences. He has rendered his physical body independent and denied it the capacity to allow what could occur in the subtler bodies to work through into the physical body. And this has happened particularly because he bears so many phantoms in himself that do not act in harmony, one pulling him one way, the other another. In denying himself the possibility of acting upon the body from his soul's spiritual aspects, He should not be surprised if a spiritually based cure has little success. Whenever a curative influence from the soul is involved, therefore, it is important to remember what kind of person stands before you. Has he put his astral body or ether body out of action by rendering the physical body independent? If so, it will be very difficult to help him with a spiritual cure. We can now understand how mineral substances act on the human being. They engender doubles in him that preserve his physical body and remove him from potentially harmful effects of his astral or ether body. Today, almost all our medicine is geared to this, since materialistic medicine is unaware of the human being's subtler bodies and only knows how to treat the physical body in some fashion. Today we have considered the effects of mineral substances. We will need also to speak of the effects on the human organism of the healing forces available in herbal medicines as well as those of animal substances. Then we will pass on to the influences, the means of healing that can exist in the interpersonal soul realm and are thus spiritual. You will see, however, that it is necessary for our sequence of observations to first appraise and properly understand concepts such as original sin. Today, people so easily overlook certain things and fail to understand them. The End of Lecture 10